I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BSG Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast. Very pleased to be joined today by Azim Azar, who is an entrepreneur, investor, author, board member, creator of the Exponential View, highly regarded newsletter, and also podcast on, in my view, future and technology, but maybe he'll correct that. He's just written a, an exciting and relevant new book called The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics and Society. So welcome, Zim. Martin, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. So let's start with basics. You, you talk a lot about the exponential age. What is that and how do we know that we're in it? Well, it's where we are now. It is a period of dramatic technology acceleration, which will have second order effects in reshaping our societies, our economies, our industries, uh, our very way of life. And the reason that's happening is that there are a whole set of broadly applicable technologies ranging from computing, which many of us are familiar with, through to synthetic biology and advances in engineering and manufacturing, which are coming down in price very, very, very dramatically. And as they become cheaper and cheaper, they become more accessible. As they become more accessible, more businesses choose to use them. But just like broad-based technologies of 100 years ago, like the telephone, electricity, and the car, not only do they provide a business opportunity, they also start to change our ways of life. What's distinct about the exponential age is that the pace of change, the pace of technological advancement is measured not across lifespans, but rather within the period of a decade or five years or sometimes even quicker. Is it your expectation that this will continue? It's sometimes spoken about, you know, using the word singularity and so on, as if this exponential will continue for some time. But, you know, biologists might say that all systems have limits and countervailing forces. Will this phenomenon of exponential growth continue? Systems do have limits, and Malthus was one of the first to observe that, you know, the idea of the limit of what the land could produce in terms of agricultural products. What I identify as a mechanism here, though, is a mechanism of learning. Fundamentally, the technologies are improving very, very rapidly because of the speed with which we can learn and scratch that very human itch, which is to take a shortcut. And so I feel that in the length of time that we need to consider as business leaders, these trends will indeed continue. For anyone who's come out of the technology industry, perhaps you're involved in semiconductors or consumer electronics, you've probably been hearing about the death of Moore's law for at least a decade. And you know what? The thing just doesn't die, right? It just keeps on going and, and other things start to replace it. So I think for all intents and purposes, if you're thinking about your, your next five years, your next 10 years, you're thinking about your legacy, this trend will continue. Just to play devil's advocate, I do see some contradictory signals in that long-term GDP growth rates do appear to be trending down. They bounce around a lot, but in my view, they appear to be trending down, driven by demographic aging and other factors. And of course, we haven't seen the explosion of productivity growth in the economic statistics that we expect in relation to technology. How would you reconcile those sorts of facts with, with your view that we're fundamentally in an age of exponential learning and growth? Well, economies are really complicated things. And you rightly point out that there are other factors, such as demographics, such as the, the tightness of the labor market and the ability for workers to 
to sort of negotiate uh, better terms or investment in, in their own human capital. And so those are also often confounding factors. But I also think that we, we face a moment where perhaps we are reaching the limits of our traditional ways of measuring things. Of course, there's been a long debate around whether we measure the GDP or welfare impact of digital products well enough. So many of them are free and they don't show up in the statistics at all. And we also need to think about you know, other dimensions that are perhaps not captured. If you think about lighting at home, today many of us use LED lights. And LED lights actually draw much less power than the traditional incandescent light. And so in my home, which is very 21st century and beautifully lit by LED lights all over the place, we actually draw less wattage than we did in my parents' home with all of its incandescent lights 25 years ago. So there's a moment where we're getting something, but we're not really capturing the value that I as a human get from this new, new technology. And to maybe wrap up this question about are we measuring the right thing, I talk in the book, The Exponential Age, about the carbon intensity of advanced and less advanced economies. And one of the things that, that's fascinating is that if you just take a look at the United Kingdom, between 1999 and 2019, British GDP increased by 75%, yet the amount of electricity used by the economy declined by 15%. So we actually create twice as much wealth for every kilowatt hour of electrical energy that we use. On top of that, we decarbonized our electricity. So when we start to look at the, the carbon load, which is this incredibly important thing that economists and politicians have refused to measure for decades, actually we've become incredibly efficient set against our carbon load. So our carbon productivity has gone up hugely. Perhaps we should start to measure that as well. It seems that one of the central ideas in your book is the what you call the exponential gap, which is the difference in speed, tell me if I get this right, between the progress of technology, very fast, and the progress of institutional change, very slow. Did I get that right? And, and what are the broad consequences of that gap? You did a great job. The idea of the exponential gap is that there's a real distinction between the pace and potential of these technologies and the few organizations who take advantage of it. and traditional institutions, be they companies, incumbent companies, be it the regulations, the norms, and the laws that we use to make life livable on a day-to-day -day basis. And that that tension is the source of a lot of the division, a lot of the friction that we start to see in our economies and in society more broadly. So am I right in assuming that you see the technological progress as somewhat inevitable, but how we handle the gap, the sort of institutional and social responses as being problems of human agency, that, that, that depends on us. Would that be a good way of characterizing it? Well, I think there are certain aspects of technological progress that have a strong likelihood of, of happening. I mean, partly it's just that I argue that the act of technology that is trying to figure out new ways to meet human needs, whether they're individual needs or their market needs, is a very human process. It is just something that all of us do. And anyone who's figured out how to pack their suitcase better understands that itch, that human ambition. But I do think that the direction, the shape of technology is actually governed by the way in which we, by which I mean wider society, engages in 
the dialogue around technology and frankly outside of the technology industry and I'm an, you know I'm a technology industry insider but outside of the industry I don't think that business leaders and politicians and civil society has engaged well over the last 30 or 40 years in questions like what do we want our technologies to do what do we want these innovations to actually bring to us we've left not only the science and the engineering to a particular industry we've also left the normative aspects of those questions the ought aspects to that industry and you know i think that we are lucky that technologies improve we should take advantage of that and more of us need to step in and start to say this is how we want to shape this force so let's dig into some of the company implications because our audience is primarily company leaders this exponential gap of course certainly exists for incumbent companies non-digitally native companies on the one hand everybody's aware of that and everybody has their digital transformation program to try to catch up and is very paranoid about disruption on the other it's a, it's a very hard change problem have any non-digitally native companies managed to to break through the exponential gap in your view it is really really hard for again some of the reasons that i know bcg will have explored with clients over over many years but one example of a traditional company that has i think done quite well is the farm machinery manufacturer john deere so john deere makes combine harvesters and and tractors and you can think of it as about as far away from exponential technologies of silicon chips and synthetic biology as, as you might imagine but about a decade ago john deere started to transform themselves into a a data first platform and through that they exponentialized themselves i've just made up that word uh, martin and so essentially what what they they created was a platform not dissimilar to something like the app store where third parties can come in and plug in additional services that make life better for the farmer whether it is you know real time weather or precision agriculture or additional information one of the things that you see happen from about 2011 is that john deere's share price just do super super well and so i think it's a good example where you actually manage to transform your business model in a few years and see the fundamental benefits of it but i agree that it's generally not easy Do you have a view on what the success factors are there because it appears to be pretty easy to get it wrong to try to compete with a digitally native company on their own turf and be too slow at change or you know be targeting sort of yesterday's technologies or whatever but what are the factors that make it possible for companies like John Deere in some cases to to break through When I looked at companies that were doing very well at adopting technology early and in particular I, i spent some time looking at artificial intelligence and those companies that had seemed to be making better progress than others and the thing that stood out and it's a very uncomfortable <laughs> answer was that companies who started early and started to take risks small risks meaningful risks built up the muscle so being an exponential age company is not a destination it's a process and what i learned when i talked to many executives involved in building out ai systems was that those who started early created credibility they created winners they also created a desire in managers and and workers more broadly to be involved in the ai programs and that creates a virtuous circle and that cycle starts to feed itself and the transition starts to happen rather quickly 
But the other thing I would say is that if you look across companies, there doesn't seem to be a single template for success. And in my book, I actually briefly talk about Microsoft, which in a way lost its way first with the internet and then with mobile devices back in sort of 2009, 2010. And then just under the leadership of Satya Nadella, roared back into contention and is sort of as great as a Microsoft of old. So I think it's important to recognize that, of course, getting started early with leadership support, learning and learning quickly and building the muscle is important, but there doesn't appear to be a template from what I can see. Yes, the Microsoft example is a very interesting one because you could take it in two ways. You could say, even the disruptors will be disrupted. The revolution will you know, eat its own children. That uh, scale and success represents a source of inertia, which creates an exponential gap in even technology companies. Or you could regard it as the, you know, the fundamental advantage of Microsoft that they were in the technology business. They had the tools to, to catch up. Do you, do you think the disruptors will be disrupted? Do you think that the, the big digital giants of today will have a good chance of persisting? I think they've learned from history. And so they've all observed what happened to Microsoft and they've observed what happened to Unisys 15 years earlier and Nokia. And so they, they understand better where the risks lie. And if you look at how these sort of superstar mega companies have behaved, they buy risks upfront early. So Google bought Android, the mobile operating system for what would be now considered pocket change. Facebook acquired Instagram and WhatsApp and Oculus. And so they tend to make early moves before other parts of the industry or other industries think that these things are important. And so you get to a stage where one thinks, well, of course, there's new competition coming out all the time. And these markets remain full of entrepreneurs wanting to take them on, but no one has yet done so. And I argue in the book that these companies have achieved a new set of capabilities and also managerial capabilities for, for managing complexity that untethers them somewhat. And I think since the book came out, what we have seen is moves in China towards reining in Chinese exponential age technologies. And let's say the Chinese authorities have not relied on the spirit of competition to peg those firms back at all. You know, they've really taken quite a firm grasp using the powers of the state to say enough is enough. We need to, to sort of restructure where power lies in these, in these industries. So I think that gives us an inclination about what at least one other smart group of people think, which are the Chinese authorities, about the likelihood that competition will regulate these industries. In order to get the full benefits of the exponential technologies, do you concord with the view that we need to introduce greater element of competition? We need to break up the new US steels and standard oil company equivalents? Or you know, conversely, do you think that that will impede progress and disrupt network effects and so on? Concentrations of power are always atrophying, whether they are concentrations of power in the academy or in political establishment or in industries. So I think the question to ask ourselves is, do we now believe in the exponential age in 2021 that the old adage that too much power is unhelpful no longer holds? And I think it clearly still does hold. And so the question is not how magnificent is our iPhone or how wonderful is, is WhatsApp. It's how wonderful would these things have been if there had really been a genuinely competitive environment out there? Of course, that presumes perhaps some um, innovation in, in regulation because the uh, traditional metrics of market share concentration when companies cut across industries or of consumer harm when 
products are more widely available, lower prices don't really seem to apply. Do you, do you think we'll get the regulation that we need to rein in the power? You're right, it will require new ways of thinking about regulation. And we've obviously got the Chinese example where the Chinese have really gone off and said, look, there's an issue here and we're just going to have to deal with it in, in a sort of quite abrupt way. But even in, in the US, in the United States, in, in my book, I talk about the work of Lena Khan, who was then an academic, and her way of looking at the issues of these kind of squid-like companies that seem to have tentacles everywhere. And, and since the book was published, of course, she's been appointed to run the FTC in the United States. And so she brings, I think, a new doctrine into how we should think about the scale and the power of these companies. The thing we have to recognize is that if we really are at a transition point in industrial organization, there will be new rules that will emerge. And we can look back in history and, and look for certain precedents that might help us. We can look at anecdotes that might help us tell the story and persuade people. But in reality, we're going to be drafting you know, a whole set of new ways of looking at these, these issues. So I'm optimistic that there is work out there that has been done in, in the academy and has been done by lawyers to help us think through these questions. Of course, you then have to jam it through the, the sort of tiny straw that is the political process. And, you know, there we have to see what happens. One of the interesting things you say in the book is that, in your view, you don't think that workers should be regarding as an immediate concern what you call the robocalypse. Robocalypse, yeah. The mass destruction of automation. Some people would argue the opposite. Why do you think this is not an imminent concern? Well, I don't think it's an imminent concern because largely it hasn't happened. I mean, there have been cases, there are particular stories and companies where that has, has happened. When we start to look at longer range data, more longitudinal data, we see that the economy tends to create new jobs that didn't previously exist. It's why prior to the arrival of the COVID-19 pandemic, in most of the rich world, employment rates were higher than they ever had been, despite the fact that we have tractors and telephones and fax machines and you know, a whole bunch of other amazing labor-saving technologies. I think what you also see is that the companies who had invested most heavily in automation technologies were often the ones that were hiring the most. And that the COVID pandemic was a good example of this. You know, Amazon, the most automated retailer in the world, added close to a million jobs, right, in the 15 or 16 months after the pandemic started. JD.com, which is a Chinese retailer, in 2018, unveiled a warehouse that needed four workers to ship 200,000 packages a day. And JD.com grew its workforce by 25, 30% every year thereafter. So one of the things that I argue is that the issue with robotization is more that advanced technologies like AI and predictive systems and robots are hard to handle, but they give you a competitive advantage. The kind of management team that can understand that has the vision and then has the attention to detail to actually be able to build those systems and implement the change is probably a strong management team. And they probably motivate their employees more. And so the company becomes more competitive. So the way robots take jobs are not so much that they take your job, it's that they make your company more competitive and a competitor goes out of business and that's where the jobs get, get lost. And that's where I think that how the robot job apocalypse may ultimately start to play out. And that's certainly what some of the data suggests when you look at what economists have looked at over the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, just to dig into that a little more, 
I guess a slightly less pessimistic but still pessimistic hypothesis is, is job quality, that we may need more jobs, but there'll be less specialized jobs overall, and that therefore, you know, human labor will be commoditized. What's your feeling about job quality? Yeah, I mean, I think job quality is a much, much bigger issue. What you start to see in these advanced companies is a real barbelling. So there are people who are being paid basketball player salaries at one end. And then quite often, there's a cloud of contractors and lower paid workers and gig workers who are actually at the front end sort of finishing the work off. And so there's always this tension that you start to see comparing the average salary of a programmer in Uber versus what a, what a driver makes. And that picks up on the, some of the ideas of scientific management that we've had for you know, 100 years or so. But with the power of algorithmic monitoring systems, with the power of gig working platforms that provide labor solutions to companies, but not work and dignity solutions to the, the labor force. And I think that's a real issue. Now, how it actually plays out is really, I think, less about the technology and it's more about the relative bargaining power in the market between workers and between companies. And what's happened in the United States and in many parts of Western Europe over the last 50 years has been you know, a real diminishing of the power of labor to organize and to express itself and to stand up towards um, changes that management might want to implement. And I think that that will create a real societal and political risk, something that we won't be very comfortable with unless we find some way of redressing that, that power balance. I mean, one extreme hypothesis that has some currency is that the, the fundamental problem of economic scarcity will be solved and will enter a state of plenitude when exponential technologies reach a sufficient level. I guess it's a, a sort of variant on the singularity hypothesis. And, you know, if that were the case, then one of the principal problems of society would be how to guarantee living a meaningful life to those that don't have to work that you could either regard as a liberation from drudgery or an enormous new social problem. What's your view on the, the end state uh, destination in this sense? Well, I think we're at a really exciting period of time from a, a technical perspective. We're going to drive down the price of computing still further. We're going to drive down the price of producing energy and with that drive down the amount of carbon that we emit while producing that energy increasingly close to zero. We're going to do amazing things with harnessing the power of, of nature and biology in our industrial systems, and the nature of manufacturing will change. So there will be more things that today cost money, resources, and our precious carbon budget than we've had in the past. But I think that there are still two questions that we have to tackle, one of which is a systemic one, which is the idea of the Jevons paradox, which goes back to the 19th century which is effectively, in rough hand, the mess expands to take over the space available. And the Jevons paradox essentially says that, well, we might reduce the price of all these things, but we'll just consume so much more that we'll continue to you know, produce waste and pollution in, in a deleterious way. And that's a values-based challenge that we have to address. And the second issue is the one that you talk about, which is where do people ultimately get their fulfillment from at a point where everything might be provided for them? And again, that's a values-based question. Now, you know, I don't think we are sufficiently close to that strange Star Trek singularity future for us to be worried about being bored. I think we actually sit and face the fight of our lives with climate change on one hand, and then depending on your country, questions of poverty and equity and inclusion that continue to, to go on. So I actually see this as a, a huge opportunity 
to reduce the load and the mess that we create to bring technologies and capabilities to the market quite cheaply. And then it's up to us, it's incumbent on us to steward that capability well, and perhaps better than we have stewarded it over the last 40 or 50 years. So let's end with a few thoughts on management and companies and competitive advantage. So is exponential technology already changing what we term management and how companies operate? I think it's really changing how companies operate, not least that we are moving away from, in many places, a traditional linear value chain, that we're moving towards companies that coordinate a complex web of activities across a platform. And if you look at the sort of really successful firms in this space, and of course, we can think of an Apple or an Amazon, but you can also look at someone in the biology space like a Jinko Bioworks. They have a platform approach towards doing business. And that means that organizationally, they're, they're different as well, because it's not just a sort of a value chain that gets reflected in an organizational structure. The activities are different, the way that people are rewarded are different, and the nature of products are different. So I think there's already been a significant shift in sort of organizational thinking. A competitive advantage historically has been scale and, and learning effects and relative market share, essentially static scale advantage. Does that change fundamentally due to exponential technologies? I mean, that's a great, great question. One of the things that I argue is that you start to see increasing returns to scale when you have a platform-based business model that ends up having network effects. The network effect meaning that every additional supplier or, or customer who comes on the platform adds value to everyone else. And that tends to give a company a head start that is often quite hard to catch up. And web search being a great example. I mean, Google has become so far ahead of any of its competitors, it's hard to imagine someone catching up on web search. So that really starts to become the source of competitive advantage, the ability to manage the platform, manage all of the different participants in it, and figuring out how you get those network effects to create a flywheel inside your own business. So perhaps it's not that scale ceases to be important. It becomes based on other new principles and becomes more dynamic in nature. Would that be a, a fair view? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it, it's about that. And it's also about the fact that the scale is coming from an intangible asset. It's not coming from being able to buy more of the silver than anyone else. It comes from the fact that ultimately, the reason you have the network is because everyone in the network is on your platform. And that doesn't show up in the warehouse as something that your auditor can count. It emerges in this sort of funny way of an intangible asset, which behaves very differently to a traditional physical one. And lastly, what about the implications for, for leadership? And we have this classical view of a, of a leader as a, an experienced, wise person who cascades instructions down the hierarchy. Does the new wiring of the organization change the role of leaders at all? Leaders do have to look very different. And I think the reason is that the gap between first and second place is so far. If you remember the David Mamet play, Glengarry Glen Ross, first prize were the coveted Glengarry leads, second prize were steak knives, and third prize was you're fired. Well, in the exponential age, second prize is you're, you're fired as well. So the stakes are very, very high. And that means that you have to lead teams who are self-managing, who are exploring areas for which there isn't necessarily a playbook, and there probably isn't operational data, and you have to give them the flexibility to succeed at the front line. And that's a very, very different modality to the command and conquer 
organizational structures that we may have seen over the last hundred years, things that were more reminiscent of the military of yore. But it's interesting, of course, that militaries of today look much more dynamic and networked now than perhaps they did when companies were modeled on them. Well, thanks for spending time with us today describing your new book, The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is Transforming Business, Politics and Society. I've been speaking to Azim Azar, and I'd strongly recommend this book as a, as a great survey of the future with respect to technology, but also the social, managerial and competitive implications. I think it's a fascinating read and congratulations on the new book, Azim. Martin, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.